Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you again, Bishop, for taking time out of your schedule to share with us on this uh, as we get close to the end of Lent here. You're welcome. Good to be with you, Kyle. Yes, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, so um, Holy Week is about to begin. And I thought it would be good to begin this uh, this show today with the prayer, the opening prayer of Mass uh, for Palm Sunday. We call it the opening prayer of Mass the collect mm-hmm. because we kind of collect our thoughts and collect all the prayers of the community that's gathered. And um, Palm Sunday, technically in the Roman Missal, is Palm Sunday of the Passion of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So the Mass begins with that uh, procession of palms and the blessing of palms. But then once we finish that and have the blessing of the palms, right after that, we kind of enter into remembering the passion of our Lord. So so that's why it's called Palm Sunday of the Passion of the Lord. So let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty ever-living God, who as an example of humility for the human race to follow, caused our Savior to take flesh and submit to the cross, graciously grant that we may heed his lesson of patient suffering and so merit a share in his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, our bishop offers his reflections and insight on the upcoming Palm Sunday Mass, including why everyone receives blessed palms and how the story of Christ's passion, which is read at the Palm Sunday Mass, is a revelation of God's mercy. Then it's on to another especially important event the Catholic Church will soon celebrate, the Chrism Mass. Bishop breaks down the symbolism of the blessing of the oils and the consecration of the chrism. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners on topics like whether or not public officials who support abortion should receive Holy Communion, what the and with your spirit response at Mass means, and if it's okay to wear a rosary as a necklace. If you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. While there, go to Audio Library and check out all of our previous episodes. This is Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes, and we are, as you mentioned, Bishop, going to be leading into Palm Sunday this coming Sunday, which is April 14th. And Bishop, I, I think on your schedule, it looks like you're going to be in South Bend for the at the St. Matthew's Cathedral. Yes, I'll celebrate Palm Sunday Mass at St. Matthew's uh, beginning at 9 o'clock in the morning. So everyone is invited. I try to bi-locate during Holy Week between Fort Wayne and South Bend. Uh-huh. And uh, now I, I have... I'm back and forth a lot during Holy Week. You know, yeah. I have chrism masses and both cathedrals. And, and this year I'm doing Palm Sunday at St. Matt's. And then Holy Thursday, I'm back for mass at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. 
Then Friday, I'm back for the celebration of the Passion at St. Matt's. Okay. And then Saturday, I'm back in Fort Wayne for the Easter Vigil. And then Sunday, I go to another <laughs> parish. I'll be going to St. Francis Xavier in Pearson on Easter Sunday. So I get a lot of miles on my car. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Uh one of the things I thought maybe we could do over this episode and then next week kind of continue that is just walk through what Holy Week looks like and um, maybe kind of go over some of the readings and some of the different masses that happen or services in the case of Good Friday. And so maybe if today we kind of focus on Palm Sunday up until Wednesday and then next week we can kind of focus more on the Triduum. So Palm Sunday is the last Sunday in Lent, but when does Lent officially end? Lent ends with sundown on Holy Thursday. Okay. But, you know, don't think you should stop your Lenten penances just because Lent ends with on the evening of Holy Thursday because Good Friday is a day of fast and Holy Saturday is a day of penance. Mm -hmm. So... Even though they're not Lenten days, we're already in the Easter Triduum, we really don't stop our Lenten penances until after the Easter Vigil on Holy Saturday night. And they always have that question, well, is it really 40 days? Uh -huh. And um, have you ever added them up, Kyle? I, I've just kind of trusted that it, it adds up to 40, I guess. I had never really did the count. But. Okay. Well... Actually, if you count from Ash Wednesday to Holy Thursday, uh -huh. it's actually 44 days. Okay. So people always get confused at this. Why do we say the, the 40 days of Lent when there's actually 44? Uh -huh. But this gets a little complicated, but if you want, I can try to explain it. Yeah. But back at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, they ruled that Lent would begin on the sixth Sunday before Easter. So it did not begin on Ash Wednesday. It okay. began on a Sunday. And then it ended, as it does now, at dusk on Holy Thursday. Mm -hmm. That added up to 40 days. Okay. Okay, so if you count from Sunday, the sixth Sunday before Lent, uh -huh. I mean, if you count the sixth Sunday before Easter, uh -huh. All the way up to Holy Thursday, including Holy Thursday, that's 40 days. Okay. However, when the Council of Nicaea said that, they said, well, but you don't fast or do acts of penance on Sundays. Mm -hmm. So if you took those are out feast days. Right. So if you took out those six day those six Sundays, that leaves you with just thirty-four days of penance and fasting. Uh-huh. So people, Christians, started saying, well, Jesus fasted for 40 days. We should, too. Uh -huh. So I think it was the 5th century or whatever, they added Good Friday and Holy Saturday as days of fast. So that bumped the number up to 36 days. Okay. And then they still weren't satisfied saying, well, we need four more days. So in the next few centuries they decided to add the days at the beginning and begin with the Wednesday before that Sunday when it used to begin. And that then added up to 40 days of fasting. Okay. But it actually 
ended up adding to the number of days of Lent, actually up to uh, 44 because those extra Sundays. But anyhow, so basically, if you look at it today, the season of Lent is technically 44 days, Hmm. Ash Wednesday to Holy Thursday. But the number of days for penance and fasting is still 40. Because if you take that 44 and you subtract the six Sundays, Uh that means there's 38. Okay. And then if you add... Good Friday and Holy Thursday, I mean, Good Friday and Holy Saturday, uh, as two more days of fasting, you end up with 40 days of penance okay. and fasting. So I hope all of our listeners <laughs> could follow that. Yeah. So technically, I think you could say there are 44 days of Lent, but the number of days for penance and fasting before Easter is 40. Okay. Interesting. So with Palm Sunday coming up, this seems to be one. It seems like there's only two days of the year where we do these big start outside and move inside for mass. And it seems to be pretty universal no matter where I am. They do this for Palm Sunday and for the Easter vigil. Are, is that true? Just those kind of two yes, main I, times? Off the top of my head, I think they are the only ones that we have. Uh, begin outside now now you have a couple options on palm sunday okay usually parishes they're big masses they'll start outside but you can also and and have the whole procession uh-huh. but there's another form where you could abbreviate it and start inside like in the back of the church sure whereas for easter vigil it always should be outside you know with the easter fire uh-huh. unless of course it's pouring down rain right. <laughs> but um sometimes then you kind of I've been in that situation. You just kind of open the front doors and go under the awning or uh-huh. in, the, in the narthex of the church and have the fire. Just make sure you don't burn the, the burn the church down. <laughs> <laughs> Good tip. Uh, so why is that for Palm Sunday? What, what's the idea of starting outside and why do we well, have that difference? Because Jesus processed, mm-hmm. you know, from uh, Bethphage, Bethany to Jerusalem. So it's an imitation of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Easter Vigil, of course, the procession is the procession of the light. I mean, obviously, it's a fire, that the Easter fire, so that's appropriate to be outside. And then to process with the light of Christ into a dark church is very symbolic of the light coming into the world, mm-hmm. the light of the resurrection, overcoming the darkness of sin and death. So, yeah, very meaningful uh, liturgies on uh, both those days, the way, the way those masses begin. Mm-hmm. And so for Palm Sunday, any thoughts or a preview of your homily at St. Matthew's that you might be sharing? Oh, I have to confess, I haven't prepared my homily okay. yet. I've been, still time. I've been thinking more about the uh, Chrism Mass and... You know, usually I don't preach too long on Palm Sunday because, you know, we have the reading of the Passion, which is is quite lengthy. Yeah. So priests normally have, I mean, there's so much you can preach on because you have the reading of the whole Passion. And uh, you can also do a little short homily at the beginning of Mass uh, after you, actually you have the Gospel of Palm Sunday outside. Um, And then the Gospel during the Mass is the Gospel of the Passion. And the priest or deacon can, can do two homilies. You could do a short one outside and okay. another one after the Passion. Huh. 
And we're going to go more into the passion next week, kind of preparing ourselves for the Trudum. But you mentioned the, the passion reading on Palm Sunday. It kind of starts this tradition that we really only see during Holy Week of multiple parts of the gospel and the audience having some audience, not audience, but the congregation having some audience participation in the reading of the gospel. Why do you think that that is something that's important? Well, I think it's just uh, when you have the different parts, I think it brings out the drama of the, of the gospel of the Mm -hmm. passion. You have a narrator and then you have the priest or uh, is to take the part of Christ and say the words that Jesus said during mm-hmm. the account of the Passion. And then there's a third person who would read the parts of other characters of the, um, of the gospel account, like maybe some of the bystanders, bystanders or others who, who speak during the Passion account besides Jesus. Mm-hmm. For example, Pilate and um, Herod, etc. Yeah. And there's so many details and parts of different stories in the Bible. Palm Sunday is one of these rare occasions where we actually have some kind of physical representation of what was happening, where everybody gets a palm whenever they come in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't do this on any other feast day where, oh, because we're talking about the lepers, here's uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But uh, why, why do you think Palm Sunday is one of those days where we say, all right, this is important enough that you should have some kind of physical thing to hold in your hand? Well, again, with the procession, it's the idea of a little bit of a reenactment of the entry of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem. So the crowds carried olive branches and palm branches. So we have continued that tradition, and in the procession, we sing, uh, we sing Hosanna, just like the crowd did, and we hold the palms like the crowd did. So it's, it's very much, um, I think, entering into the drama of that event. And, you know, the palms are blessed, so they become sacramentals, and um, you can keep them, and all year you know, kind of reminds you of, of Holy Week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know at home when I was growing up, we always put the uh, palm behind, uh, placed it behind the crucifix, and um, it hung there for the whole year until mm-hmm. we brought him back to church to be burned for the ashes. Um, so, yeah, it's a neat neat tradition. Are they blessed before they're handed to the congregation? It could be done either way. Okay. Um, you, some places I've been, they have them all together in a basket, and they're blessed, and then mm-hmm. they're distributed. Other places, they're distributed beforehand, and then the priest walks around and blesses them while they're being held by in the hands of the people. And since it is blessed and it's a sacramental, I, I think a lot of us don't really think of that as we take these home and throw them in the backseat of the car or throw them up on the dash or who knows what happens to them once we get home. What is proper way to handle them and treat them, and what would be something that we should avoid with the palms? Yeah, well, really, blessed items, whether they're palms or rosaries or medals, should never be discarded in a trash can. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should either bury them or we can burn them. Mm -hmm. Or, as I mentioned, I remember we would take them to the parish 
to be burned for ashes before the next Ash Wednesday. And during the year, we would have it displayed, like I said, behind a crucifix. You could put them behind a, behind a sacred image that you have in your home as a reminder. But yeah, you shouldn't just throw them in the trash because they are sacramentals. Yeah. And then people get into the origami of the palms making crosses and things like that. All of that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's nice. I think when I love, you know, I don't know people have that talent. Sometimes they'll give them, give to me, uh, the palm made into a cross. And I have someone every year who gives me a piece of palm that they've knitted for my car. So I'll put it up on the visor. Uh huh. Yeah. So, so people have done creative things with the palms and all that's, that's fine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Probably not make them into lawn chairs or anything like that. Right. Usually a spiritual kind of (laughs) symbol would be best. (laughs) Uh, One of the things, looking back at the Today's Catholic, you had a post from your homily in 2016, and you connected mercy to Palm Sunday. I don't know if you'd care to, to comment on that connection at all. What year was that? 2016. Wow. I have to try to remember. That's three years ago. Was that the year of mercy? That's what I was kind of wondering. Um, it might have been. I, I yeah, I'm trying to remember. But I, I would say, you know, the obviously the whole story of the Passion is mm. a revelation of God's mercy. Interestingly, this year on Palm Sunday, you know, we have a three-year cycle, so we're in the cycle of Saint Luke, and and Luke's gospel is the gospel that emphasizes most the theme of mercy. For example, it's only in Luke's gospel, and we'll hear this on Palm Sunday, where you have the two thieves and Jesus, the dialogue. The other gospels mention that there were two criminals who were crucified next to Jesus, but but only Luke gives us that dialogue of, and then the good thief. Well, there we see Jesus's mercy. The good thief repented of his sins. He. He said that he deserved to die, and Jesus didn't deserve it. And and then the thief said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Mm-hmm. And Jesus responded, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, it's just so beautiful, the mercy of God. And that's just one example. But there's other examples in the reading of the Passion. I mean, the crucifixion itself reveals to us the depth of God's merciful love. So, yes, I think uh, it's really important, too, to, and I've said this many times, to try to go to confession during Lent, uh, Holy Week. It's uh, just a beautiful time to personally encounter God's mercy in the sacrament of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, coming up, we'll talk about the chrism masses and what is so important about holy oils right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're talking a little bit about Holy Week, and we mentioned that it starts with Palm Sunday this Sunday, and then you, on Monday and Tuesday, you'll be celebrating the Chrism Masses. April 15th will be at St. Matthew's Cathedral, 7.30 p.m., and then April 16th is at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, also at 7.30 p.m. Uh, that latter one, the Tuesday one, will be aired and broadcasted on Redeemer Radio if people aren't able to make it to the Chrism Mass. Um, Dr. Lewis Pearson and Mike Kelly will be hosting that. They did that last year as well. And uh, it's always great to be able to 
listen in if you're not able to go. But the Chrism Mass is always such a, a special time. Can you explain a little bit about what happens at the Chrism Mass? Yes, it's a beautiful Mass. I mean, we have the concelebration of all the priests of the diocese at one of the Chrism Masses. Um, it's really huge at uh, St. Matt's because we have so many priests at Notre Dame and whether they're Holy Cross priests who, who teach or minister there, or some mm -hmm. retired priests, priests of other religious orders that are studying there. So, so we get a lot of priests and um, maybe 150 or so at the Mass at St. Matt's and maybe 70 or 80 priests at the at Fort Wayne. So it really is a mass where we are celebrating the priesthood, which was instituted by Christ at the Last Supper on Holy Thursday. Traditionally, it's been celebrated in the morning of Holy Thursday, but because that's not uh, an easy day mm -hmm. for priests, it is allowed to celebrate it earlier in the week. And I think most dioceses in the United States, they do it on an earlier day like we do, Monday and Tuesday of Holy Week. During the Mass, uh, the priests renew their priestly promises. So there's a lot of focus on the ministerial priesthood, the ordained priesthood, mm -hmm. because the priests, and always in my homily, I will, uh, it, it's usually focused on that, on the priesthood and the, all the laity and the religious who are there also are there in support of their priests with mm -hmm. their prayers. So it's very beautiful. The other aspect, of course, is the blessing of the oils, the blessing of the oil of the sick, which is then distributed to all the parishes and all the priests. So that's the oil they use when they administer the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, mm -hmm. the oil of the sick. So I bless that during the Chrism Mass, along with the oil of catechumens, which is the oil that someone is anointed with on their chest prior to baptism. So catechumens, for example, are anointed with this oil. Babies who are baptized during the rite, before they're baptized, they're anointed mm -hmm. uh, with the oil of catechumens. So the blessing of those two oils, and then the most important part, the consecration of the sacred chrism. It's more than a blessing, it's a consecration. Hmm. And because the chrism is, the, is, is used, you know, it comes from the word Christ, anointed one, and the anointing with chrism takes place at all the, in those sacraments that imprint an indelible character on the soul. Mm -hmm. They're sacraments that can only be received once. Baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, the ordination of priests and bishops. Uh -huh. It's not used at ordination of deacons. So after the, a child is baptized, there's an anointing with chrism on the crown of their head. The sacrament of confirmation, there's an anointing on the forehead uh, when one is sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, strengthened to live the faith. And then, of course, the priest's hands are anointed with the chrism when he's ordained, mm -hmm. the hands that will handle the body and blood of Christ. And a bishop's head is anointed when he is ordained a bishop. Chrism is also interestingly used for the consecration of or dedication of altars and of new churches. Even though they're not living, they're inanimate objects, they're the most sacred objects and they're, they're anointed with chrism. So during the Chrism Mass, uh, I do a long, beautiful, long prayer of consecration. The priests join me for the end of that prayer. 
but chrism is not just oil. It's not just the olive oil. It's it's oil that's mixed with balsam. Mm. Balsam is a kind of a perfumed resin, and that's why chrism smells so good, reminding us of the fragrance of Christ that St. Paul talks about and how we are to be the fragrance, the good odor of Christ in the world. So very solemn at the beginning of the prayer, I, uh, the bishop breathes over the oil mm-hmm. and uh, of chrism, kind of a sign of the, the breath of, of God, the breath of the Holy Spirit, because that word for spirit in, back in Hebrew, ruach, is, is breathe, you know, the breath of God yeah. is the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of symbolism in this. Um, so if, if uh, some of the listeners have never been to the Chrism Mass, I highly recommend attending. It's very beautiful. I'd say get there early if you want to see it because uh-huh. the cathedrals do get filled up. And you talked about it being consecrated rather than blessed. We talked about the palms being blessed earlier. What is the difference then with the end sacramental of uh, a a blessed palm versus a consecrated oil? How are those different? Yeah, I would say consecration is just, it's more solemn. Um, I'd say it's, it's more than a blessing. So we take much greater care, for example, with chrism as far as even though you don't dispose of any blessed items, you know, irreverently, chrism, we're very careful mm-hmm. because it is something even more sacred than a blessed item. So, you know, we're careful when, for example, when I'm uh, administering the sacrament of, of confirmation afterwards, I just don't uh, wipe my hands clean on a paper towel and throw it away. No. Hmm. Um, they use lemon and bread and that's how my hands are cleansed of the chrism. And then that's, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. And you know, it's one of those things that a priest can never consecrate chrism. That's reserved to the bishop. Okay. Like the distribution of the oil of the sick, also chrism is distributed then in, in vials to all the parishes mm-hmm. for the celebration of the sacraments in those parishes. And the oil of catechumens as well is distributed. And- just kind of thinking through it, the other times that I, I hear the word consecration is with the Eucharist mm-hmm. and then with consecrated life for a religious brother or sister. Are there other times in the church that we use the term consecration? I think those are the only two I can think of. Huh. Um, the Other than consecration of churches, but now we, okay. and altars. We typically, in the rites, they refer to that now as uh, the dedication. Okay. Um, the other thing is there is consecration is used for, as another word for ordination, the consecration of a new priest or the consecration okay. of a new bishop. You will see that language there, which, of course, comes from the Latin, which means, you know, to, uh, you know, consecratio uh, sacra, meaning holy. So there's a making holy of mm. that's taking place. But it's a very reserved uh, thing in the church, so we don't yes. use that very often. And then with the oils, you mentioned the priests take them back to their parish. Do priests also keep this on them? Maybe not at all times, but often for uh, like emergency use for anointing the sick or last rites? 
Yes, I mean oil of the sick, but not not the chrism or not the oil okay. of catechumens. I've never heard of a priest keeping that, but but often a priest will keep on his person or in his car the uh, oil of the sick, so they're ready in cases of emergency. And that's a good idea because you never know when uh, you know. I've I've been in a situation when I've been driving and there's been a really serious accident. And let's say someone is seriously injured or dying. It's it's uh, if I have the oil of the sick and the person's Catholic, you know, I can anoint them right there on the on the side of the road. You know, so you just never know a circumstance where it might be uh, good. So I mean, right. it might be uh, necessary. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a lot of priests do keep the oil of the sick with them. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have some questions about sanctioning public officials, retaining sins, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you've submitted for him to answer. And first, I wanted to mention that if you wanted more information about the Chrism Mass, we talked about this back in the March 28th, 2018 episode. So March 28th, if you go back and listen to that, uh, Bishop went into more detail about the Chrism Mass, so check that out. Uh, But we have some questions left over from the Rekindle the Fire Q&A that we didn't get to. And so... Is the USCCB considering sanctioning any public officials, for example, Andrew Cuomo or Nancy Pelosi, regarding their legislative support of abortion rights? The USCCB doesn't have the authority to to do that. It's it's um, the local bishop mm-hmm. would would have that authority. Um, okay. So the bishop where the person has domicile where the person resides but there is a lot of discussion about um this the need to sanction public officials you know the andrew cuomo thing was really scandalous the fact that he not only signed into law but really promoted Mm -hmm. um the legalization of abortion in the in the last uh trimester but also even we can speak of infanticide because of even allowing a child who's been aborted, who's alive, to, to, to not do all that we need to do to save the child. So mm-hmm. it really is scandalous. And so some are thinking that the bishop should impose excommunication upon, upon him. This has been something discussed a lot. Uh, it's kind of debated. You know, the Code of Canon Law does list abortion as uh, someone who knowingly... Uh, has an abortion or does an abortion performs an abortion is automatically excommunicated if they have if all the conditions are there but there's nothing in the code about a politician or an elected official who votes for pro-abortion legislation hmm. so some are saying that canonically it wouldn't be it, it's uh it would be difficult to do so it's debated i think where the bishops when they had a discussion and this was probably Around the time, I think, that I was ordained a bishop back in 2004, the question was more about whether Holy Communion should be refused to American Catholic politicians who vote, you know, in favor of 
of making abortion legal or against laws that are banning abortion. I think the great majority of bishops are clear that politicians or elected officials should refrain from receiving communion Mm -hmm. if they are publicly supporting abortion or abortion rights. Where the debate comes in is those who are saying that such officials should be denied communion. And some of the bishops will say, well, they don't want to have a, that it's really on the conscience of of the official, and they don't want to have, an, you know, fighting at the communion station. And then, of course, not knowing, you know, there's the whole question of which officials and their voting record, all that kind of, it gets pretty complicated. But when you look at something like the Andrew Cuomo case, you're talking about something that's really egregious. And I think, as I said, the bishops would... I'd say the great majority says someone like him should not receive communion, and he doesn't actually. So, hmm. But then there are some who say that he should be denied communion or anyone like that should be denied communion if they came up. And then others want to go so far as the, the route of excommunication, which would deny the reception of all sacraments. It would deny someone from being a godparent. Mm-hmm. So excommunication is even wider mm-hmm. penalty. Excommunication is, like all penalties in the church are, it's a medicinal penalty. It's it's not just punishment, it's really medicine so that the person will convert or repent. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, as I said, it's a controversial issue, but I think at the very least, we can say that someone who has separated themselves from such fundamental moral teachings of the church, like defending the sacredness of human life, unborn human life, someone who promotes abortion, you know, should not receive Holy Communion. Okay. And as far as a bishop acting on any of these things, would that be done privately first before anything publicly would be done? Or because it was a public issue to begin with, would a public response be appropriate? Well, I think in all these cases, there should be a private discussion with the person. Usually these are not like surprises. Usually as the, a bill, for example, is going through the legislature. So there'd be plenty of time to have a private meeting. Uh All right. Our next question is, I understand priests' ability to forgive sins. However, Christ also gave the power to retain sins. When, why, and how is this done? Well, if, for example, um, it's pretty rare but uh, or uncommon, but a priest in the confessional would be retaining the sin if the priest would not give absolution. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the priest when he's hearing confessions, has to make that decision, whether to forgive, to grant absolution, or not. Generally speaking, you know, he's going to give absolution because a person's there, you know, 99% of the time because they're truly sorry. Mm -hmm. That's why they're coming to confession. But let's say a person comes in who is not repentant, who mentions a sin, but then says that uh, they're not sorry for what they did Uh or that they don't intend to not do it again Uh so they don't have a firm purpose of amendment then they can't be given absolution if they're 
intent is to continue in that sin. Now, they may fall, but they should at least have the intention to avoid that sin. So that would be an example, if a priest doesn't give absolution, of retaining. Okay. One of our listeners asked, what kind of qualifications should one have to be an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion? Well, the qualifications for extraordinary minister, um, basically, they have to be well instructed in what they're doing because they need to certainly do so with the dignity that befits the Holy Eucharist, but also their life and their moral life, their fidelity to the church. All those are important. Otherwise, it can cause consternation to people. You know, you wouldn't have someone like we were just talking about, someone who was uh, publicly pro-abortion as an extraordinary minister. Absolutely not. Someone should be living and believing the moral teachings of the church and cannot be living in a state in which they're not supposed to receive Holy Communion. Uh For example, someone who is divorced and remarried outside the church Mm -hmm. uh, cannot receive communion, nor can he or she be an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Or if you have someone cohabitating Mm -hmm. uh, before marriage, and I mean, that person would not be eligible to be an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. So anyone who's a uh, a notorious or public sinner can't be. One should be living the Christian life, should be following the moral teachings of the church, and uh, those are our prerequisites. Okay. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You could call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some more questions, like one about the meaning of and with your spirit, one about wearing rosaries, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and he is answering questions that you've submitted. Joshua Burkhart from St. Vincent de Paul Parish in Fort Wayne wrote, At Mass we hear, The Lord be with you, and we respond, And with your spirit. Is it just a greeting, or does it mean more? Can you help me understand this exchange better? That's a good question. You know, that's it's a traditional response that goes back to uh, the early centuries of the church. We find that in liturgical texts where the people would respond, and with your spirit, in Latin, et cum spiritu tuo. So when the priest says, the Lord be with you, the people respond, and with your spirit, they're really referring to the priest's identity the man's identity as a priest, that he received the special gift of the Holy Spirit when he was ordained. He was configured to Christ at his priestly ordination. So this and with your spirit is referring really to that um, that gift of the spirit that the priest received and that, that gift that needs to always be, be kindled or rekindled. Hmm. Um, it's really like saying the Lord be with your spirit. So it's like, yeah, the Lord be with you with the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your priestly life and in your priestly ministry. Hmm. A little bit more than just good morning. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit more. Yeah. yeah. 
It's a lot more than in also with you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's good that we've, we're very intentional about these things. Yeah. I think that's good to remind ourselves. Patrick Wheeler from St. John the Evangelist in Goshen asked, I noticed many of my brothers in Christ wear a rosary around their necks as a reminder to pray for one another. Is it wrong for me to do similarly in solidarity with my brothers? No, I mean, I think we wear religious medals around our neck. I mean, a rosary is to be prayed, uh, but I don't have a problem with a person wearing the rosary. However, it, it's, it shouldn't be as a piece of jewelry. It should be as... As, as Patrick said, as a reminder to pray for one another. That's a good hmm. reason. But then to take it off one's neck and use it is, is the important thing. Okay. Uh, but it's a sacramental and like a, a blessed medal that one wears around the neck, one can use a blessed rosary around his or her neck. Where it would be wrong is if one is just doing it out of a fad or, you know, for whatever reason. But devoid of any spiritual significance, then I don't think it should be worn. Okay. And lastly, someone asked, what is the best way to pray the entire rosary daily? Do they mean by entire rosary five decades, one of the mysteries, or are they talking about all four mysteries, which would be four rosaries? Well, I think it could go either way. I don't know, maybe you'd have any advice for either of those? Well, I mean, I don't know that there's a best way. Um, I mean, I know there's some people who maybe prefer to uh, do a few decades at different times of the day. That's mm -hmm. certainly fine. I prefer to do it all at once. I'm talking about a five-decade rosary, like, let's say, the Joyful Mysteries. I mean, if I get interrupted, I get interrupted, But, but I do kind of like to have that focused meditation where to do it all at once is you know take 15 or 20 minutes if i'm you know really focusing mm -hmm. on the prayer on the mysteries of lifting my mind and heart to god and i like to do it in a quiet place or sometimes when i'm walking or sometimes when i'm driving but i think there's no preferred way i think to be honest it's up to the person and what works best for him or her yeah. And did you mention a while back about an app that you like to use for prayer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hallow. Hallow. Uh, okay. And as, in fact, some of the guys who who uh, who, in, who started it, uh, I saw this week and um, it really is really good. I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, Hallow. Um, and it also, for example, you know, you look, get on the app, they give you so many different options. For, and they help you to meditate. They help you to, uh, they do have about praying the rosary and they kind of do it with you. Hmm. Uh, Stations of the Cross. I mean, just a lot of good. And there's some talks. On, I just did a recording for them too, by the way, huh. this week on, um, on contemplative prayer. And uh, I don't know it'll be on the app somehow. Sure. Uh, but no, I, if people are looking for a, a prayer aid, it's the best app on prayer that I've ever seen. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah, definitely have to check that out. And also, I will mention that the meditations that you did on the rosary are available in the Redeemer Radio app, as well as the meditations on the Stations of the Cross. So both of those might be a great resource as we enter into Holy Week for you to help in your, uh, your Lenten prayer as you prepare for the Triduum and for Easter. So you can check those out, a free Redeemer Radio app. And then, as you mentioned, the, the Hallow app as well. 
Well, thank you so much, Bishop. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Listen next week for another new episode of Truth and Charity. This time, it'll be a special Holy Week episode. Bishop will talk about the Holy Thursday Mass and how the Gospel reading for that Mass, which tells the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, teaches us what true discipleship looks like. Then the rest of the show will break down the Gospel reading from the Good Friday service. Hear Bishop offer his reflections as he walks through Christ's passion from his arrest, to his sentencing, to his crucifixion. For additional resources to help you pray through Lent and Holy Week, download the Redeemer Radio app and select Lent Resources. You'll hear Bishop's reflections on all 14 Stations of the Cross and much more. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.